sweet. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to Theology on Tap. Grab a seat, grab a drink, and then grab a seat. We are glad that you're here. My name is Justin Hare. It's great to see everybody. I just want to say that the playlist tonight was amazing, is amazing. My favorite. Does anybody know the rhyme or reason to the playlist? Have they picked up on it yet? It's a theme, that's right. They go off the themes each week. And so this week we're talking about stuff about family, which is kind of cool. And so Brian is the, uh, the master mixer for all of our uh, playlists. So we're so glad that you're here. Uh, as I said, my name is Justin, this is Brian McGreevy, and you're at Theology on Tap. If this is your first time, welcome. What you'll need is you'll see these little um, pieces of paper around the room. The way the evening goes is we'll talk for about, tonight we might go a little longer, but it's usually about 20, 25 minutes, and then we can open it up to any question whatsoever. You can text in anything, literally anything that you want, and Meredith... Anonymously. Anonymously, right. So you'll see the QR code on the top of this paper. You just scan that QR code, and then you can submit any question that you want to, and Meredith will be curating all the questions that come in and posing them to us, and we promise we will do our best to be concise and try to get through as many of those as possible. But again, those don't have to be related to anything we talk about tonight. It could be just whatever you have on your mind. We are excited to do that. And you'll see questions that maybe interest you. Go ahead and like those, and that will come to the top, and hopefully if we get enough likes, we can figure out which questions we can start with. So, again, welcome. If you were here last week, you probably recognize that we started a little mini-series uh, about finding purpose in life. We've talked a lot about finding purpose in life in the past, but we thought it'd be worthwhile to spend a, a couple uh, Theology on Taps in a row talking specifically about what does it mean to find purpose in life. And if you were here last week, you, we talked about one of the things about finding purpose, a life filled with purpose is also one that's that's truly free, right? And so we looked at this perhaps surprising place. Did I just go off? Am I still on? Are y'all sure? Okay. Um, a surprising place that you might not go to for what it means to find freedom in life, which was the Ten Commandments. We looked at the first two commandments about uh, having no other gods besides the God of the Bible um, and not replacing anything in his place. And we said, kind of like a fish in water, the way to find freedom in life is to find um, not, not removing every restriction or limitation, but finding the presence of the right ones that fit your nature, what you were made for. And so that's kind of what we're talking about in this, is looking at some of the Ten Commandments. And if you, um, I'm, I'm curious how you might think of, when you hear those words, the Ten Commandments, if they immediately cause like a negative reaction in you, just hold on for a little bit, because one of the things we hope to do is, as we go through some of them, basically say, look at these through the lens of, as like, if there's a God, and if he's made the world this way, then the Ten Commandments are kind of like a roadmap for how life is intended to work best. And so tonight, we're going to be uh, looking at this idea of one of the things that is a life that's filled with purpose is marked by flourishing relationships all throughout the Bible, but especially the Ten Commandments, we see relationships are a key to finding purpose in your life. And uh, especially, I mean, the first four commandments are about God, having a right relationship with Him. 
But there's two explicit relationships uh, that are in the Ten Commandments, the parent-child relationship and then the marriage relationship. And so that's kind of what we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about tonight. So the command, the fifth commandment, which is, you know this one? Honor your father and mother. Yeah, that's right. That's the fifth one. And the seventh <laughs> commandment, you got it. This is, yeah. <laughs> thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not yeah. commit adultery, which presumes a marriage relationship. Yes. So um, what do these two things, Brian, have to tell us about finding purpose in life? These two commands, what, what might they say? Well, I think both of them are about the framework that God has created for human flourishing. And I think that word flourishing is really important. Flourishing doesn't mean to be just okay. Flourishing means what Jesus said in the Gospel of John when he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so the idea of flourishing is that you are living your life in such a way that you are experiencing joy and fulfillment and purpose and all those things that we talked about last week. And one of the things that, uh, going along with what you were saying in your uh, prologue there, uh, <laughs> is that, that went off. or your prequel, whatever you want to call it. I was uh, preaching. I was yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> I was deeply moved. Um, so the, the, the point of that is that God makes this framework of reality. And it's not an accident that the Ten Commandments have endured for thousands of years as the basis for many societies and the basis of the way that people interact. But one of the most important institutions that you see in the scripture starting at the very beginning is this idea of the family. And you see this idea of the father and the mother. You see this idea of marriage and you see God creating male and female right at the beginning of Genesis, both of whom reflect the fullness of the image of God and reflect together the fullness of the image of God. And that idea, an image of marriage, um, goes right from Genesis all the way up through the book of Revelation, not just about our human relationships, but it's also a metaphor for the uh, relationship that we have with Christ himself. And the ultimate fulfillment of our relationship with Christ in Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this imagery is everywhere, but the problem for many of us, I think, is that we don't, um, we don't like frameworks. Uh, we, we feel that might be limiting. Mm. Um, but the problem with our understanding, and we talked about this last week some, is that we confuse the idea of freedom with the idea of license. License is the idea that you just do whatever you want to and it has no consequences. Freedom is the idea that you are free to act in a way that um, is virtuous and that it, it builds uh, the life of everyone. So for example, I have a really great uh, MacBook Pro, uh, which is so much better than my old Dell computer that I used to have. And one of the things that I like to do is to go hang out at my sister's place on Seabrook Island. And sometimes I take my MacBook Pro with me uh, down there. But if I were to take the MacBook Pro and go into the ocean with it, um, even though it's, it's portable, it's easy, you can do that. Um, and I were to sit, as I love to do, sit there at St. Christopher where there aren't any waves and just sit in the water and it's so nice and lovely and cool. <laughs> and I have my MacBook Pro in my lap. As much as I may feel free to do that, the MacBook Pro is not going to work anymore if I do that. It's, it's going to cause death, as it were. Uh, it's kind of like the, um, 
I don't know if I said this earlier, but the, the idea of the fish that's in the water, like people think, okay, where is the, is the fish, Not the, the, fi MacBook Pro the fish the water. free to be, you know, yes. out of the water? Well, of course it can be, but it will die, right? right. And so yeah. uh, the fish is most free when it's in the conditions that uh, lead to its flourishing based on its nature, right? Mm -hmm. And its design. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the, the way that we look at the, at the Ten Commandments. And one of the things I think that we see uh, right here talking, uh, let's begin, I mean, we could talk so much about both of these, but let's start with like the um, honor your father and mother command. I think one of the things that's so important is like you see right there in the get-go that like institutions, the institution of the family, is not inherently bad. I think we're in a day that really uh, bucks the idea of any sort of institution or authority that these things are like naturally prone to evil. But I think what we see here is that by God's design, he, he created this, that it's not inherently evil, but it's actually part of the way he created the world to exist. And so um, the idea of like hierarchy, you know, that there's parents who have authority. And what we've, well, I don't know if we've shared this yet, but in the Ten Commandments, when you understand, you know, people tend to limit them too much. Like, there's actually so many more uh, vistas that can be opened up in each commandment when you mm -hmm. think about, like, okay, the com every command that says don't, you know, don't murder, right? It actually, the opposite of it is also commanded, right? So the, the idea of you should pr uh, protect and promote life mm -hmm. is the opposite of don't murder, and that's also entailed. Well, two, also the idea of... Um, an idea like the command to honor your father and mother, it, it inside of that command is also so many other related commands. And when we think of the issue of authority too, that's related to the issue of honoring your father and mother. So the command, the way the church has understood it, also relates to like if you're a student, honoring your administration, your teachers. Uh, if you're an employee, to honor your employer, uh, if you are a citizen of a nation, to honor your government and its officials, which, by the way, we see all the, the questions that are coming in every week. And so uh, the fifth commandment actually has a lot to say about how we speak of those in authority in the, the nation that we live in. And so we're called to honor all of those in authority. Now, what does that, actually, what does that mean exactly? How, how do we honor our parents or those in authority? Well, I think that part of honoring our parents is to, and this does not presume anything that people's parents are perfect. Um, maybe somebody in here had the perfect parents, but I know I didn't, Justin, didn't. My parents are awesome, but not There's perfect. There's no such thing. And um, I know this is shocking, but I was not the perfect child, nor was Justin. And so I think, <laughs> I think honoring your parents, a lot of what that is about is treating them with respect, um, it is acknowledging that they may have more wisdom than you do. One of the things that's difficult, I think, in our culture is we all have become what scripture calls wise in our own eyes. And we think that there is not anything to be gained from the experience of people who are older. Um, and parents, presumably, not always, but presumably most of the time, are deeply invested in their children and love their children and want what's best for them. And so respecting them, um, honoring them by, um, particularly when you're young, doing what they say without challenging their authority, um, that's very important. And then as you get older, to continue to try to build a relationship with them um, that is centered in love and respect. 
And the other thing that's interesting there is you notice in the commandment it says, honor your father and mother. And there's, there's an implicit command in there that the structure of the family involves the father and mother. And one of the things that we see in our culture right now um, that I would encourage you, if you haven't looked at this, just go Google something like effects of fatherlessness. Um, the, there's a crisis of fatherlessness in this country and indeed in the Western world um, that's not playing out very well for those children of single mothers. And God bless those single mothers who many times work through horrific circumstances to do their best for their children. But God's plan was that it shouldn't be that way, that there should be two, the, man, the father and the wife, the mother, who are bringing up the children together. Yeah, the ideal is set out in the Bible, and that's in this world that's that's broken, that's filled with sin, it never lives up to that. And so that was one of my questions is, is there any limits to this notion of, should we, okay, so if honoring uh, is, yes, it means a condition of our heart. I think it's to revere, to respect, but it, it also means an act of the will to obey um, our parents. And and I do think that there's limits to the to every earthly authority, right? So like, Again, go back to the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four about the primacy of our relationship with God. And so if any earthly authority is telling us to do something contrary to what God intends, it, it would not be a good thing. It's not what God wants us to do, to actually be obedient to that thing that's going to turn away from us. And while we live in this world, yeah, even, even the best parents are going to stumble. Um, what would you say to those who've experienced just terrible tragedy in their institutional families? Um, I would say, first of all, that it would be really important if you've had major dysfunction or hurt or abuse or anything like that in your family um, to go and speak with a priest or a Christian counselor um, about that. Uh, I think it's also very important to pray that you would be able to um, love and forgive uh, in that circumstance because as we said before, a lot of times when you allow that root of bitterness, even if you feel it's justified because you've been mistreated, the root of bitterness ends up poisoning you rather than the other persons like that. Quotation attributed Nelson Mandela that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that it will kill your enemy. And it doesn't work that way. So I think that um, trying to practice forgiveness Sometimes there needs to be a degree of separation or a degree of controlled controlled interaction, um, which is something if you were seeking a counselor, um, they would help you uh, define what that might look like. Uh, but I think that the uh, what often happens is that when we're in pain and we're hurt, our reaction is very often to want to hide and to just cut off contact altogether. And that is probably not the most helpful way to try to work through it. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And um, I think for those who maybe open the Bible and see that God reveals himself as a father who have had terrible fathers or no father, right? I mean, like, um, it can be really easy to, to I guess, portray or um, project our own understanding of who God is based upon our own parents, right? And the reality is, and I'm so glad what you said, like even the best parents are, are broken and that just a, sh just a really um, shallow representation of the real ultimate fatherhood of God and, and the parenthood, really. And I love that the Bible 
Uh, but God does re- reveal himself as father. There are plenty of maternal images as well that, mm-hmm. that God um, reveals himself as. And so he is the ultimate parent, right? And right. so to, to not, I, I would say, encourage you not to just um, impose your understanding of what a parent ought to be when you think about God uh, based upon your own family. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that you can do, if you, every family is dysfunctional in its own way, um, some look better on the outside, some are more dysfunctional than others. But one of the things that is really encouraging is that there are people who parent really well. There are families and marriages that are really strong. And I'm thinking of Christian families and marriages and Christian parenting. And one of the best things you can do, even if your family is great, but even more so if you've come from a family where there's a high degree of dysfunction, is to, I would say, almost apprentice yourself to somebody who's in a family where they do this well. Um, If you come from a home that's been broken by a really horrible and painful divorce that you are still feeling the effects of yourself, one of the best things you can do to learn about marriage is to find someone with a strong marriage who's older and be very vulnerable and go to them and say, I want to learn from you about what a good marriage looks like. Or if you see someone whose kids seem to be really great and their parenting seems to be flourishing and life-giving, to go to those folks and say, I would love to spend some time with you and help figure out what makes your family tick. Because that's how we learn and how we grow and how we begin to appreciate um, God's design in some of these things. Yeah, I... I couldn't agree more with that. I think one of the biggest things when I was in college or right out of college, um, I, I just like like a leech almost was with this uh, one of the college ministers that I had, and he was kind enough to open up like his whole family and his life. And I had so many questions, you know. I, I nobody's family is perfect, mine wasn't, and I just wanted to know, wow, your family looks really really good. And it was so amazing. Just you, it, it's one of these things that is you, sure you can teach into it but you catch it more than anything else. Like once you actually have a vision for what this looks like, you don't even really know sometimes what you don't know until right. you actually see, wow, okay, that's how some people do it. And it's really, really um, fascinating when it comes to elements of parenting and all that. But uh, before we move on to the, the other command, I think recognizing that you know this parental relationship, uh, it's never something that you outgrow, right? I mean, yes, it's gonna change over time and that's really critical to recognize how like when you do get married, the Bible does talk about leaving your father and mother, but you always have, you're always called to honor your father and your mother. And um, I think one of the things we've talked about so often is what do I, how do I find what to do with my life? How do I find out what God is calling me to do? Two of the people that probably know you the best are your parents. Like if you do have parents in your life, um, they, they've raised you, they know a lot about you, their counsel is probably going to be a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's go quickly, uh, really quickly, to the, the last um, command we're going to look at tonight, the idea of, of don't commit adultery. Now, that presumes marriage. What would you say marriage actually is? Well, clearly, all through Scripture, from Genesis right through Revelation, marriage is the relationship before God of one man and one woman who are united together for life. That is clearly um, the scriptural model for that. So adultery um, would be deviation from that particularly sexually yeah infidelity right and and ultimately we see like marriage is is not just really an institution that's created just for humans so it's for mutual satisfaction and procreation the biggest 
picture of marriage is really about God's relationship to his people. It, and that, I think that's so critical in a, in a world where we so often long for marriage purely out of a, um, like, human selfish reasons. We, we want to be happy, we want to have companionship, um, and those are good things, right? But the biggest reason that the Bible talks about is that it's actually an instrument to make you more like God. It's going to be a tool that sharpens and refines you in your life um, as two sinners come together to live together and to be fully known and fully loving the other person. Uh, that's what it's designed to be, and it's actually this refining tool that is uh, part of your life that, that God intends. And, and I think that's really important when we think about uh, especially why, we, why people get married. You know, if it just gets hard, well, if all the reason that you have is just because it, it made you happy, that's going to leave you pretty, I mean, once that goes, it goes, right? But right. if it's really more about, okay, th- you're a player in a play, reenacting this grand story of God's love for his people, that's a pretty amazing calling that that's really what a marriage is all about. Mm-hmm. You brought up the idea of, um, you know, particularly sexual infidelity with, with adultery. Um, and I think we can often focus so much on particular forms of sexuality uh, that, that break that design. Um, what all is entailed in this commandment to not commit adultery that maybe people don't think of? Well, I think part of it is being committed first and foremost to your marriage relationship in all sorts of areas, um, but also being committed first to your relationship with God. One of the things that I think people get confused sometimes is we have such a cultural idea that getting married is the person that you marry, their job is to make you happy and for you to be fulfilled. And all of us want to be happy and fulfilled, but that is way more burden than you can ever put on another person. And there is, there's a great C.S. Lewis quotation, of course, um, (laughs) about this where, um, and I'm gonna butcher it as I always do, but he says something like, human history is the long sad story of humanity trying to find happiness in something other than God. And I think there's, there's a deep truth in that. And so one of the things about um, the commandment not to commit adultery, sort of the contrapositive of that, is to do everything to build your marriage and to keep it strong and healthy and to be in submission together um, to God. And one of the things sometimes people forget is scripture is very clear that marriage, Christians believe that we are created uh, for eternal life and that we will live forever with God in um, his kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. And marriage is only for this time that we're on earth. It is not an eternal institution. So it is one of the things that it is meant for is to help help us build each other more and more into the image of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, and you think about Jesus when he takes this commandment, what he does all throughout his teaching. Uh, if this sounds like a hard teaching, he takes it to the next level. He goes, actually, uh, don't commit adultery. You, you commit adultery when you actually lust after another person. He takes all of these and goes to the heart level, mm-hmm. right? And so um, you don't have to be married in Jesus' eyes to break this commandment right. about right. adultery. And so uh, I think one of the things that we see all throughout is any sexual activity, any sexual activity, in uh, whether it's uh, mental affection or heart affection that is intentionally engaged in, not just our behaviors, but anything that's intentionally engaged in, uh, in heart, mind, or, or will, is 
the outside sexual activity outside the confines of what God's created in marriage uh, is breaking this commandment, which is that's Jesus, who we think is like the most meek and mild, loving person. That's what he takes this commandment as understanding. And so, uh, right now, the the, pan- like the pandemic, the epidemic of pornography, I think, which is prevalent so much, um, you know, that is one of the ways we see this broken. That that people uh, certainly talk about, but one of the things too is that just this. People think the idea that church has like this low view of sex, right? And like <laughs> it was God who created it in the first place, and He created. He could have made procreation like a miserable experience, and He made it actually incredibly wonderful. And so that was God's design. So He's not out to just like strip people of joy, right? Right. So what He's intending to do is create this place where the the good gift can be most enjoyed, right? Yeah. I'm just really quickly to finish up on this is like um, the idea that sex is far more than just a physical act. Like it's, it's, it's created by God to bind people together who are totally, legally, fully committed to one another in the safe confines of that relationship. And so I think our culture diminishes sex in many ways. Yeah, and part of what's so interesting about that, I don't know how many of y'all have seen, there's been a um, pretty widely distributed article recently uh, from the secular press on uh, suggesting that we need a new standard for sexual activity um, that is broader than just consent. That consent is too slippery a concept, um, that it's hard to know what informed consent means. And so this secular person is arguing for what they call radical monogamy, uh, which is essentially Christian marriage, except maybe not with the Christian part. But it says the only place where you can really be safe and sure that you don't become a Me Too statistic is in a radically monogamous, long-term committed relationship. And that the brokenness that comes from anything other than that is not worth uh, going through uh, that whole process. And so it's just really interesting seeing from a secular point of view coming back around to that idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think just to, to wrap up here on this, uh, one of the things that we want to do when we talk about the Ten Commandments is recognize the heart of Christianity is not about how good somebody does at fulfilling these laws, right? The idea of Christianity, the whole message of the gospel, is that Jesus loves um, those who don't honor authority, those who break authority, those who uh, have blown it in their relationship with God and with other people who are adulterers and murderers and and all of that at a heart level too. And that's the good news. That's why we're doing what we're doing is it's ultimately this incredible love of a God who seeks after those who never actually did what they were supposed to do, right. but who comes and rescues them and changes their hearts so that they can actually live the way they were designed to, right? And so we don't just dismiss all of the Ten Commandments, but Christianity is about being saved and, and rescued to be able to like live the way we were intended to. So that's why we're giving some of this uh, a lot of thought. I'm sure we've got a ton of questions um, that people have asked, and I'm, I bet there are some doozies tonight. So um, how are we doing, Meredith? I think we're doing well. We have a lot of really great questions. Fantastic. Um, but if y'all want to take a minute and upvote the questions that you'd like to hear, unfortunately this is not yet yet. You cannot downvote questions, but if you have, if you're <laughs> more fortunately, 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's a good thing. Well, as you do that, Brian, would you, um, yeah, as you all go and vote for other ones, uh, talking about marriage, I think we'll always want to talk about, like, singles too, right? And we didn't really hit that as hard as we could, but what yeah, would you say? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that is so clear in Scripture is that marriage is not necessary for joy and fulfillment. Jesus, we're told over and over again, is the perfect human. Jesus is not married. Jesus lived a life full of joy. Um, and the whole idea in Scripture is that God is the father to the fatherless, the husband to the husbandless, all of those kinds of things, and that our, our joy and our completion is in our relationship with Christ. And right behind that, in the fellowship of the believers. And this is one of the areas that the church has not lived up to its responsibility, but hopefully um, people are beginning to try to do this, that uh, we're called to love each other radically within the body of Christ, to bear each other's burdens, to be there for each other, to have each other's back. And that kind of Christian community, um, when you experience it, uh, brings a lot of joy and points you toward the kingdom. So there are clearly people, um, according to scripture, who are called to singleness. Not everyone is called to marriage. And so it is not in any way less than if you are someone who is single. Yeah. and to. To summarize, I mean, we've talked about husbands and wives and parents and children. And you may not have, I mean, I don't know everybody totally in their experience in this room. You may not have any of those relationships. But I love what Jesus said. He, When asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He said, my mother, my brothers, my sisters are those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Right? And so the idea of those relationships, even if you don't actually have them, in many ways, the reality of them is fulfilled in the church's life right. and experiencing yes. that in the community. Yeah. With that um, deep bond. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, let's, let's open it up. Okay, our first question. Um, if faith in the Holy Spirit helped me discern truth of the Spirit and the scientific method uncovers earthly truth of the universe, how do I interlace the two? That's quite the question. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, so I think that the the premise that I would start with in answering that is that all truth is God's truth, um, scientific or of any other kind, uh, and that the Holy Spirit promises to lead us into all truth. Uh, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John in chapter 17, um, when he's praying for those who will come to faith in him, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So I think part of the way that you do that is you, you pray, you seek guidance, uh, you study, uh, you look at what science develops through the scientific method, but you also don't worship science. Science is a construct. The scientific method is a construct. And... The interesting thing, and this is something that we don't have a very good handle on in this country, but the vast majority of scientists that we would be able, if we went around the room trying to think of names of scientists that we've heard of, the vast majority, probably 90% of them, would be people who were deeply Christian and saw their scientific discoveries as possible only because God had made an ordered world that was discoverable. So... Um, I don't think there's any uh, conflict there. There's a great little book uh, by 
by uh, Sir John Polkinghorne, who was a brilliant particle physicist, um, president of a college at Cambridge in the UK. Um, he, he writes about science and religion and how they actually complement each other. Um, so that's a great resource for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd even go, I think um, Rebecca McLaughlin is an author who wrote on um, common objections to the Christian faith, and she talks about one of them, one of the objections is science defeat Christianity. And she does a great job in that little chapter explaining the scientific method was actually created by Christians, mm -hmm. and it was exactly what you said. The order, the orderliness of the universe as, as a creator is the only thing that allows science to actually work, yep. that you can have tests and observations and, and, and test those observations and hypotheses and, uh, and work those out. So, um, yeah, I think seeing science, which looks at what theologians call God's general revelation in the world, um, we, we look at that as well as his special revelation, which is in his, his word, the Bible. Great question. Yeah. Our second question. I have a family member in the LGBTQ community. They see my faith as offensive to them. What advice do you have? Uh, that is also a very good question and something that I think a lot of people are dealing with and it is, it is a source of real angst and concern, I think, for a lot of people. Um, one of the things that is unfortunate is that I think our culture has uh, painted Christianity as being opposed to anyone who identifies as LGBTQ um, in an absolutely profound way. And I think the reality is that Christians are called to love all people, to understand all people as made in the image of God. That being said, um, the understanding of Christianity is that um, the practice of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is not part of God's framework. And so that is going to be offensive to someone who is living that kind of lifestyle. But I think that that's overcomable by loving that person, praying for that person, trying to stay in relationship with that person. Um, there's a terrific book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, who was a professor of women's and queer studies at Syracuse University and was married to another woman um, who uh, through the love of her neighbors, um, converted to the Christian faith and then chose to live a different lifestyle. So um, all of that's very controversial, but I think the most important thing is to love the person, to not reject them, um, to help them understand that God does not reject them, and to um, become well-informed yourself by reading some good books on that. Um, there's another good book called uh, Watched and Waiting um, by a guy named Wes Hill that can be helpful with that. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, recognizing that what love, the way the world today understands love is just affirming at all costs and that you're unloving if you disagree in any ways. But the reality is everybody has some view of what makes life flourish and work well. And as a Christian, you do believe that God created the world, and I don't know why he did the way he did things, you know? And 
Um, and there's parts of the Bible that I don't understand and I don't like, but uh, I think it's recognizing that we want to have both grace and truth that are a part of love. And so it's having loving, kind conversations, but holding fast to the, the clear, revealed Word of God, um, which I think from the beginning to end is, is pretty clear on that. Um, and what I would say, too, is... Uh, like anything where you're going to disagree with somebody, do a lot of listening first. Mm-hmm. Go in and uh, if, you're, if you're going in just to say a bunch of stuff to somebody, particularly somebody who's hurting and feels already rejected, is not a way to, to love people. And so I think you can hold to the truth and ask a lot of questions that aren't leading questions and genuinely try to get to know somebody and have compassion uh, while still holding to this framework that, that you believe God created uh, the world in this way, and they may disagree, and that's okay, but your consistent presence in their life over time is going to speak worlds of uh, just a, a lot of volume rather than here's what the truth is, and I'm going to share it with you, although right. there may be times to do that. Yeah, and I think listening compassionately is so important, and I think the other thing that's important is that in the Christian framework that we've been talking about tonight, one of the things that our culture has done that is unprecedented in the history of humanity is this extremely reductionist approach to what it means to be a human being so that your entire identity is defined by what you want to do sexually. And that is antithetical to the whole um, Christian understanding (laughs) that you are made in the image of God and you have so much about you that uh, beyond, you know, certainly your sexuality is a part of who you are, but it is not the principal thing. And there is so much more to a person than just that. So to define somebody down just to that um, is completely against that sort of framework. Yeah, I think it, it's always been offensive in every culture to say that you are not, like, that you aren't your own, that you are a created creature who belongs to a creator. But I think especially today when we view ourselves, our identity is formed so much by our sexuality, to say that your body is not your own but belongs ultimately in service to God is an incredibly offensive concept. But that's, that's just one of the truths that the Bible makes is that we aren't the arbiters of our own truth, that right. all of us belong to God individually. Right, we're created. Yeah. We're not our own creator. Right. Yeah. Great question, though. And also I'd encourage you, if you're struggling with that, talk to somebody. Um, whether it's a priest or a counselor or whatever, who might be able to help you with that. If there's if there's more to it too, come see us afterwards. There's a lot to that. How do you reconcile marriage is creation by God, so that man isn't alone, and Paul's wish that others be like him in singleness, so that they could be closer to God? Oh, that I like this one. Yeah. Okay, well, so I, I think that's what, that gets at one of the things that Paul didn't marry, right? And you see that in the pages of Scripture that he actually says in some ways that it's better to be as, as he is. Now, I think he has the gift of singleness, right? Um, not everybody has that. But we live in a day that the idea of singleness, lifelong singleness and lifelong celibacy is so repressive that it's absolutely not even conceivable. But the Christian worldview says, like, the way we understand the world is, like, you aren't who you are. Like, your sexual desires don't define you fully, right? And so Jesus was a fully flourishing person and never had sex. He, and I think that is something that just we don't even have a category for. 
and, and I think that's a beautiful thing to think about. Um, you know, if that's something you can do, just really practically speaking, I'm married with three kids. I have a lot of restraints on my life because of that. I'm unable to do a lot of the work that I will be able to do eventually uh, when my kids are grown and out of the house. Uh, that I think Paul, who's out there serving the Lord in many ways, uh, he's not a, you know he doesn't have these these good things you know the, this relationship with uh, spouse and children that just are natural limitations on his work for the the kingdom in some ways. But one of the other things that you see when you look at Paul is when you read his letters, the love just bursts off of the page that Paul was not some dried up, old, um, you know, uninteresting, not passionate person, uh, but he was somebody who loved deeply and widely, was deeply invested in relationships. So um, even though he's single, um, that did not stop him from being deeply invested in a loving relationship. So I think that those those two um, yeah. verses are not antithetical to one yeah. another. Yeah, he was not alone. Right. That's really right. important to think about. He was, had, just like Jesus wasn't alone. You know, he had all these relationships with his disciples and, and that sort of thing. So. What are some practical ways we can act in a way that upholds the primacy of grace? Upholds the what of primacy? Primacy. Okay. Primacy. It's very British. What are some practical ways that we can uphold the, the primacy of Christ? Well, I think one of the, th there are a lot of practical ways. One is to develop a deep understanding of what grace is. Uh, I will give a plug to the St. Philip's website um, to listen to the Rector's Forum from last week. Jeff Miller did a brilliant teaching on grace and truth um, that really uh, unpacks all of that theologically. But I think practically speaking, one of the ways that we uh, live into grace is to lean away from legalism. Uh, I think that legalism, uh, we, we tend to speak death when we are holding on to legalism. Grace is believing the best of people. Um, I think that we can offer that kind of grace. I think also when we look at the way that Jesus dealt with people, you see the grace that Jesus has in relationship, and part of that is by being radically other-focused. One of the ways that we express grace in our own lives is through being radically other-focused and not just looking at ourselves and what we want all the time. So I'm, I'm looking at this, how do we express grace in our own lives, but there are other ways you can interpret that. Yeah, that's good. And my mind went to... Um, you know, a lot of what social media does is put us in echo chambers, and so we only hear, we, we only get our little selves boosted up, I think, on social media and in, in the world, and so surrounding yourself practically with people who disagree with you is probably a way to live into grace, because you're going to be forced, your pride's going to take a hit, and I think that's one of the things that the gospel does, is that it creates a radical humility. When you recognize, even in the worst of people, you, if you can see yourself and your own heart in some of the worst actions in others, that is a, actually a really good, it, that's instilling humility, which is going to enable you to actually be gracious to other people. And I think that's one of the, the core teachings of Christianity is that we are far worse than we ever realize. And the whole, the rest of the Christian life in some ways, yes, we're, we're trying to get better, but if I look at Paul in the New Testament, 
he calls himself the chief of sinners when he's like at the end of his life. And so it's, it's becoming more and more aware of just how broken you are that enables you to actually be gracious with other people. Well, it's, you know, it's not an accident when Jesus is talking about this that he makes up this parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they are both at the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, I thank thee, O God, that I'm not like other men. I do my tithes, I do this, I do that, and I'm certainly better than that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector, who is at the very bottom of the social stratosphere there, the tax collector, Jesus says, would not even lift up his head toward God, but prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that tax collector is the one who's justified before God. So it's just a great remember, remembrance that we need to be always seeking God's mercy because we are all broken, we are all sinners, we are all beggars at the foot of the cross. What is the best way to ensure that your future marriage does not end up like the brokenness of your parents growing up? That is an excellent question. Um, I think there could be so many answers to that. Uh, one of them is to uh, do what we were talking about earlier for looking for models of healthy marriages to emulate. Uh, another would be to pray uh, and look for godly people to be in relationship with. Another would be when you start getting serious with someone and start thinking about marriage to begin to look at some resources like Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and to read that and talk about it. Um, if you are engaged to be married, then to do some serious marriage prep and counseling um, beforehand. I think all of those are ways to help avoid uh, repeating maybe some of those mistakes that you might have seen in your parents' marriage. Yeah, um, I think this is, I mean, my parents divorced when I was in high school, and so this is a, a question that means a lot to me. I think this is one of the things that was really on my mind as a young man, and I, I think in many ways I was surprised as I got married just how much I was like my parents in some ways. Like, you, you don't really know what you don't know in some right, sense. Right, that's and like, so true. One of the critical things is learning just how much your family of origin, like how you grew up, does shape you in some ways. But that's not irredeemable. And and if you do some of these or things... Or irreversible. Or irreversible, yeah. right. Like, the, the idea, a lot of what Brian's talked about, like, I, I tried to just literally latch on to anybody I could find who I thought was doing it well, um... I looked at the way Jesus loved people, and at the end of the day, there's not like this magic formula. It's just trying to love the way God tells, he says, love one another as I've loved you. So in some ways, I really just searched the scriptures and tried to figure out how how God has done that to me. But I think it's also learning, uh, just becoming more self-aware in your own self, like doing some uh, actually deep thinking about, okay, what was some of, what were some of the patterns in my family growing up? like. And, and writing these things down, talking with either a counselor or somebody, a mentor about, um, you know, this is kind of what was normal to me. And these are the things that I think about all the different various aspects, you know, communication, conflict resolution, how you manage money. Like, at the end of the day, like, if you go to church together, if you pray together, and, and like, those two things, mm -hmm. I think, like, 
dramatically decrease your chances of divorce. If you, I, I think if like if you don't cohabitate before marriage, if you go to church and you pray together, the chances like, that's the yes, demographic. It's, you're like off yeah. the charts on like chances of success in marriage, yeah. uh, and that's by not actually being a Christian um, statistical group. Yeah. So. That's awesome. We have a somewhat related question. What is the church's actual teaching on divorce? Uh, that is also a great question. So Jesus talks about divorce in a number of different places in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is clear is that divorce is always a tragedy and it is less than God's plan um, of um, marriage for anyone. However, there are circumstances where divorce can happen um, if there is abuse, uh, if there is adultery, there is um, perhaps a more uh, a, a sense of the possibility of divorce and working through that. I think what is very clear in scripture is the whole idea that we have in our culture of um, this person doesn't fulfill me anymore and I want to move on to someone who does. Um, that is not a concept that you find anywhere in scripture. Um, the flip side of all of that is divorce is not uh, the unforgivable sin. Um, there is redemption and forgiveness um, in the gospel with Jesus for anything um, when there's repentance. So, um, but I would say it's definitely the attitude of scripture toward divorce is very different from the attitude that you see in our culture today. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anything to add, that's really good. Why do you think so many women are against traditional and biblical gender roles? <laughs> As a woman, uh, I yeah. can speak so... Uh, <laughs> gosh, this is a trap, Brian, don't answer it. <laughs> oh, man. But go ahead, because I'm not angry. <laughs> yeah, thanks for throwing me at um, Yeah, so I think that that is a very real thing. And I think part of it is that a lot of women in our culture have been sold a bill of goods. Um, they have been told and trained over and over and over again that the most fulfilling thing that they can do is to have a career and to excel in that career not just to use their own gifts, but to be able to surpass men in that career or equal them. And if they don't do that, that somehow they have sub-optimized. And um, the role of uh, being a mother and staying at home is seen as um, pitiful in some ways. Um, and you see this whole thing with um, some of the Olympic athletes, uh, women who are very gifted um, who've gotten pregnant and have seen that as kind of the end of the world and some have had abortions um, because it stands in the way of their being able to reach this goal. And the thing that is so sad about that is that if you, and bear with me a minute here, if you will embrace for just a moment a radical paradigm shift um, from what's in our culture today and think about the fact that how amazing it is that God made women with the capacity to nurture a new life within their body 
to give birth to a new life, what an incredible privilege that is. And to think about what an incredible privilege it is um, to be able to be uh, deeply invested in bringing up that child and helping train that child in the Christian faith. Yeah, it's just interesting to me, and I'm much older than y'all are, but one of the things that was true for so many of the people that I grew up with, our mothers were people who were brilliant. My own mother is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Um, graduated with high honors from college, went to graduate school at Emory, graduated with high honors from graduate school, and she wanted to invest her life in me and my sister, and she has no regrets whatsoever about that, and she has had a rich and full and fulfilling life, but a lot of people today would look at her and say, what a waste, and that, that's just profoundly sad uh, to me that our culture has shifted so much that we devalue those things. Yeah, and maybe the, uh, my experience may uh, put me in a different category with, than the person asking the question, but uh, in my experience, a lot of people, I think you just have a wrong idea of what actually the Bible teaches when it comes to traditional roles. Um, like, they've wrapped it a little bit in this idea that, you know, women can't work at all uh, and be a mother. My, my wife works and does a phenomenal job mm -hmm. of being a mother. So I think there's a lot of, like, myths with traditional roles, too. Like, and, and any woman I talk to that actually has a healthy vision of what like a traditional biblical role for a husband is usually longs for that like if you think mm -hmm. of you know Ephesians 5 where it talks about submit to your husband it goes on some like intentionally about like husbands lay down your lives the way love Christ your wives as Christ died loved the, the church, church giving up his life for her and yeah. and so which it, of those is easier yeah well they're both <laughs> like really an incredibly tough task right but like if that's who you're submitting to, somebody like Jesus, like that usually, and, and, and submission to, like that is such a word that people get freaked out with. It, that Jesus submitted to the Father and he was not, like that's heresy if you say he wasn't equal with the Father. So like submission is not this like, it is often taken in it's this really negative way. Thing. No, yeah. and like my wife is smarter than I am. She is a better, much better leader than our aunt. She's better, way better looking than I am. Um, I consult her and we consult one another in everything. And I would say that we hold to traditional roles. Um, and it's not like there's nothing off limits for Molly to talk about in our lives, like at all. So I think most of the people that I meet, when you actually start talking about, well, what do you mean by traditional roles? Um, usually it's some sort of like perversion of actually what I think the Bible yeah, teaches. That's very true. So, great questions. Um, this was really fun. There, we've run out of time, and we would love to hang out, and if you have more questions or want to talk more, we'll be here. But thanks so much for coming tonight. And one plug, remember the Theology on Tap podcast is out there, and uh, we really encourage you to share that with your friends that might be interested. Um, we've gotten some feedback from people that have been really blessed by listening to that, uh, so we would encourage you to uh, share that if you uh, listen to it yourself to go on there and leave a review, or uh, if you hate Theology on Tap, don't leave a review. <laughs> you can be honest, just not there. That's right, exactly. You can tell us, yes.
But we're delighted y'all came, and yeah. we are looking forward to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And the next one, we're going to be talking about uh, integrity, how to live a life of integrity. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks for coming. I love that about him now that you've told me that. Yeah, he's got such a giant picture of Bob Dylan hanging in the Bishop's house. Yeah. That's awesome. Way to go, Brian. Way to go, Chris.